Okay. Let me get things moved. So, I'll be a little slower this morning than I normally am. But the plan would be open up to any questions on Daniel's message or Luke, Christmas in general, and then um, we can go to back to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, picking up where we left off on that. So, any questions from Luke? Yes. What do you mean by that is muscle control, not the, not the spiritual discipline of self-control, um, there, but, the, but simply muscle discipline. I mean, you've got to learn, like learning how to walk, you're learning how to control your, your limbs, you're learning how to control your muscles. I mean, that's why the first time people try to play a video game, they're not used to their thumb having to be that type of precise. You've got to learn muscle control. Um, and so what, part of what babies are doing when they flail and when they kick is, A, they're stretching out their muscles. I mean, screaming is actually good. It develops the lungs. And it's partly just moving these limbs that have been cramped the whole time. And so that's partly why you um, need to uh, swaddle a young baby, because otherwise he'll throw the blankets off, because he wants to, you know, stretch and move his arms. And so you've got to wrap them tightly so they stay warm. So the, the point being, Jesus doesn't, there's, there's medieval stories, and even in the Quran, Jesus is speaking out of the womb. I mean, when he talked about Jesus talking to Joseph and Mary while they're cutting the umbilical cord, that's, that's in the Quran. Um, th- these are medieval pictures of Jesus. You know, he's sitting there talking, making a sign with a halo. And just, you know, absolutely. This is not, Daniel wasn't being facetious. Um, and it's the, again, the notion that, that Jesus really isn't human. He, just, he looks human, but really he's not. Really, he's kind of like Superman. Under the shirt, dun, 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 is, you know, you know, the human. I mean, one, like, we're going to get to it in Luke, but here. Okay, good grief. That was not a good idea. Problem is, once you get comfortable, then you need to grab something, and that's just no good. Hold on. I'm just going to get everything, and then we're going to get... There we go. Okay. Okay, Luke 2. Now, we'll get there in two weeks, and I'm not going to try to answer it now. But remember how last week I told you that... Um, the section that I looked at was capped. There's a literary term called ellipses um, or ellipsis where you have a thought and a thought and they cap it like a sandwich. And so the cap from last week was 2, um, 2, 22 and 23. The time came for their purification according to the law of Moses. They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. You get that law of the Lord, law of the Lord, law of the Lord? Yeah, look at, look at, the, uh, look at verse 38. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned home. So what Luke's showing us is Jesus' parents going up according to the law of the Lord is what caps this narrative. And that's why I spent last week saying, okay, if we're going to understand what Simeon and Anna are doing, we first got to understand what Jesus' parents are doing and going up to the temple according to the law of the Lord. That's why pretty much we just looked at one point last week. But that's the literary sign that this is the framing event. He mentions it at the beginning. He mentions it at the end. Well, he does the same thing right here. Look at, look at verse 40. Luke 2. The next chunk is capped as well. And the child grew and became strong and filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him, verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. 
So what's the theme for that text? Jesus growing in wisdom and favor with God. He says it at the beginning, he says it at the end, and that lets you know you're dealing with a unit, a literary unit. And also that lets you know this is one of the main themes we're supposed to look at and see here. So my point here is, how does the eternal Son of God grow in wisdom? Jesus had less wisdom and he has more wisdom. Or favor with God. God was sort of pleased with him, and then God became really pleased with him. And, but you got to deal with, the text says something here. And I haven't really wrestled with this yet. I've got two weeks before I've got to try to wrestle with this. And who knows, I may even punt then. And some things are mysteries. But, you know what I mean? He's growing in wisdom, he's learning. Um, he isn't just showing up knowing everything. Um, and, or certainly not accessing his knowledge of everything, um, whatever that means. He doesn't know who touched him. He doesn't know the hour of the day of his return. He's growing in wisdom. Um, that's what the text says. And so we've got to be willing to say, okay, there are mysteries here. What does it mean for God to learn? But we still want to be comfortable going where the text goes, even if we don't want to spend tons of time guessing at what it means. Um, it means something. So Jesus had to learn to control his body. Not like, self, not like the spiritual gift of self-control, but like all of us learning to use our limbs, learning to use our, like anytime you learn a new skill, there's muscle patterns, things you've got to learn how to do that eventually become second nature. He had to learn how to walk. He had to, you know, all those things. Um, that's what Daniel, I believe, was getting at. Not that Jesus is lacking self, the spiritual discipline, of the moral category of self-control, and he's growing in that moral category. Rather, simply the physical skill of controlling one's muscles. Um, good question. Any, any other thoughts? Yes, Lee. Well, later in Luke, who's identified as the Savior? Who is the Savior? Serena wants to weigh in. No, no, no. He said both. He said both. Um, No, fair enough. I'll I'll have to talk to him about that one. Um, So... I guess, it's, I guess to me the logic would be more Mary identifies God as her Savior here. And then when you get to the angel saying, for unto you is born a Savior, that's a strong indication that the one who's being born is God. I think you're doing the math backwards. And maybe Daniel presented it like it was backwards. First we get told, Mary's like, I rejoice in God who is my Savior. Then, hey, a Savior is born. Indicate, well, if God's my Savior, then who got born? God. That, I think, is the logic of, of what he's getting at. Because he's connecting God, my Savior, there with the angels saying, for into you was born in David's city this day a Savior. Yeah. No, I don't, I, yeah, no, no, yeah. Um, no, fair enough. Any, any other thoughts or questions? Any other Christmas cheer? Um, Zach. Mm. Yeah. 
Sure. I would say we're not giving money because God needs money. Fair enough. We don't want to make it sound like, oh, poor Jesus is short. He's not going to be able to meet his mortgage unless you come through. Um, and, and I think we also want to be transparent. I mean, one of the things that I think is least helpful here is that we have a budget meeting every year. Hey, here's where we're spending our money. Everyone gets to see here's where we're spending our money. Not many churches do this, but anyone who shows up to our budget meeting, you won't find it out unless you show up to the budget meeting. But you can find out exactly what Daniel and I make at the budget meeting. Uh, a lot of churches don't even do that. So we try to be as transparent as possible. Here's where the money's going. Here's what we're doing with it. Here's where it's being spent. And giving people an input and a voice. So if we're like, hey, why are you spending that much money on coffee makers? You know, um, does every room need a Keurig? You know, right. So the, the one thought being, hopefully we want to instill a notion that we're spending it wisely and, and that we're not just being frivolous with it. But the 10% doesn't apply. We, Daniel and I did two messages a year and a half ago on giving. Um, we don't plan on doing it again anytime soon. The goal was to do it once, do it well, and not have to every year trot out your giving message. Um, but, but in Israel, the 10% was a tax, because remember, Israel is a theocracy, right? The, the religion rules the civic life. It's a theocratic government. The king is Yahweh's son. Solomon, in the first instance, I will be his son, is Solomon. He'll beat him when he sins, he beats him with the rods of men. So we know that in the Davidic covenant, in the first instance, the one who will be God's son is not Jesus, but Solomon. Because Jesus isn't going to sin and get beaten with the rods of men. Ultimately, his descendant becomes the, the Davidic son par excellence, Jesus. Okay. So you've got a theocratic government, and the way you pay your tithes, your 10%, is to keep the priesthood going. So even the redemption checks, last week when Jesus was redeemed, the five-shekel tax went to the Levites. And so your 10% went to the Levites. They got a portion of the sacrifices. They got a portion of your money to pay for the temple worship. Um, there's a lot of blood that needed to be cleaning. I mean, we were just talking. Can you imagine how many lambs got slaughtered in the temple over Passover? I mean, just the priests would have come out just caked in blood. Just how much, I mean, you got to imagine a lot of the priests are just on cleanup duty. It's like the, like the people going to the Air Force and they're going to fly. Most of the people are dealing with runway, you know, making the runways usable. I, you imagine most of the priests on their shift in the temple are just like, here's your scrub brush, here's your bucket, go. You know, it's just bloody, like a slaughterhouse. So it's maybe God burned it up because a lot of things offered to him would just be burned up. I don't know. Or maybe the ark was caked in two inches of blood. I don't know. Um, but the, the point being, yet that cost, all of that upkeep costs money. So that's the 10% tithe. Now, we aren't living like that. So what you get in the New Testament is something very different. Um, go to Galatians 6. So on the one hand, giving is ethically commanded, absolutely commanded. Um, no question about that. And it's not just giving where you please, but giving where you're being ministered to and served. The, the word I'm looking for is reciprocity. It's the notion of a two-way street. It's the notion of um, if you're being blessed by someone's service and ministry, then you have an obligation reciprocal to them, a re reciprocity, kind of like when one state will acknowledge a, a, a license from another state. There's reciprocity. So Galatians 6, um, 6. The one who is taught the word must share all good things to the one who teaches. <coughs> Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will also reap. Now, there's your principle, right? If, if, if people in the church, if a church is serving you and teaching you, you have a moral obligation of sorts. Now, he doesn't say how much, but you are morally obligated 
um, the text says ought, which is the, the, the moral obligation language, of, of sharing, you know, and, and giving back and serving, you know. Now, nowhere in the New Testament do we get told how much. Now, let's go to 2 Corinthians. Because um, the big principle we get in 2 Corinthians is God wants this to be volunteer, volunteerism. Which means we ought never to guilt people into giving. Paul refuses to do that. Refuses to guilt people into giving. And so we ought to as well. So I can say, look, if, I mean, so if somebody said to me, I just don't give at all, I'd say, okay, then you're in sin. Like, you're in, like if you know what the text says, forget, maybe you're ignorant, so maybe you're not in sin, but you're doing something wrong. That's not a valid option. I have no real interest in how much a person's giving. It's between them and God. You know, like, are you giving? Great, awesome, fantastic, move on. Because Paul is emphatic on this point, 2 Corinthians 8. We'll we'll start in 7. Um, No, 8. Uh, 8, 8.1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Now, Paul is in part on his missionary journey doing fundraising for the Jerusalem church. Let me ask you a question. When do you have to ask a fundraiser for permission to give? Under what set of circumstances would they need to ask Paul to be able to give? I think there's only one set. Paul told them, no, you've given enough stop. It's the only thing I can imagine. No, no, please, please. We want to partake in it. We want to, now, notice it's voluntary. No one's guilting them. They're seeing something joyful, something exciting in participating in this. Okay? So then um, he goes on. Um, verse 8, I say this not as a command. He, Paul has apostolic authority, and he's unwilling to just command them and say, look, the saints have needs, give. He wants them to do it voluntarily, and so he, he refuses to, to issue apostolic commands. He wants them to do it because they want to do it. Um, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich, and that in this matter I give my judgment. See, I'm not giving a command. I'm just tell, giving you some advice, guys. This benefits you. It's to your benefit to give. Paul is saying what Jesus said, bless is better, more blessed to give than to receive. There's a, I want this blessing for you, he's saying, that you're going to get when you give willingly. Um, he says, um, no, the grace of our Lord Jesus, okay, I give my judgment. Verse 10, this benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So what happened is Paul, on his outward journey, announces the need in Jerusalem. And he says, I'll be back in a year. And people are making pledges. People are setting aside money. People are saying, yeah, I'll save this money. I think we can give this. And Paul's basically saying to them, hey, when I showed up a year ago, you guys are all excited. Don't lose your zeal. But he's also going to deal with the fact, we'll see in a second, that some people's economic situations have changed since then. And he's going to say, hey, you thought you could give X, and now you know, your, your crops didn't come, your, your ships didn't come in. No worries. No worries. God wants you to give according to what you have, not what you don't have. Um, you had the zeal, that's good. You wanted to give generously, you're not able to. I mean, he's, he's not coming in with a bunch of rules and laws, but he is, he is lifting up this notion of it's more blessed to give. He's lifting up the Macedonian churches as an example. He's encouraging us to, to give at a level that might look crazy to others, you know. 
but he wants us. So let me keep going. Okay, so um, verse 11, so now finish doing it as well so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it. So that you guys had a lot of passion and zeal. We're very excited about this when I came out. Have a matching level of zeal when I return. So he is trying to motivate them to give, but he's doing it in a specific way, not by saying, hey, you guys gave me your word, and you said, I got your signature, you signed up for a $50 pledge, and I expect $50 when I show up. He is not doing that. Um, verse 12, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not, what, not according to what a person does not have. Which is to say, if since you made your pledge, since you made your commitment, things have changed, it's okay. You know what I mean? Like, if you, I intended to give this, and then my car broke down. Okay, cool. No worries. For I do not want, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but as a matter of fairness, that your abundance at this present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, whoever gathered little had no lack. Now that, if you chew on that for a minute, it's pretty radical, because what, what did Paul just quote as it is written? What's he referencing? Manna, were you allowed to gather tomorrow's manna today? What happened, if, what happened if you tried to gather tomorrow's manna today? It rolled it. Listen carefully. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not going totally crazy. This text needs to be weighed in with lots of other texts, but every single principle of financial um, fiscal responsibility that I hear is all about saving up manna for tomorrow. Make sure you have money for retirement. You don't want to be a burden on anybody. You don't want to be a burden on your kids. You don't, what Paul says here is pretty, this, this text hit me upside the head. And I'm, I'm not saying that this text flips everything over. I'm just saying, I went, when I first hit this text and I understood what the heck he was saying, I was just like, whoa, you just said that. I went to all these like financial <coughs> biblical stewardship books and grabbed their little scripture index in the back. And I wanted to see if they dealt with this. And I hadn't found one that did. Because what he's saying, if, you, if this rules the day, and I'm not saying let this rule the day, I'm just saying let this have its, an appropri- its appropriate weight in the discussion of fiscal planning. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time, and we would say should be set aside and saved for your future need. We would say that, right? Your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need. What about my future need? Their abundance, someone else's abundance will supply that's pretty crazy, because we're capitalists and we're Americans. All I'm saying is that type of thinking at least needs to be part of our thinking as we're thinking about giving. I've just seen people get so tied up with they need to be prudent, need to be responsible, that they sort of tie themselves up into a box. And I'm all for the, the Proverbs. There are passages that talk about saving up and storing. I'm not trying to say that that's all foolish. I'm just saying there is room for a, we don't need it right now, and they do right now. One of the most, one of the most convicting things I ever saw was a friend of mine um, in New Hampshire. You know him, Chris. Coach, um, he uh, was at a church. The church, a girl had just started coming to the church. She was in legal problems um, that were possibly her own making, but didn't look like they were her own making. And she was claiming she was innocent. Anyway, she she needed money to get bail so that she could work to to earn money for her defense. Um, and, um, and the church had accepted her. The church had baptized her, and she didn't have the bail money. My friend Chris emptied out his four hundred one k to pay her bail. And a number of people at that church pulled him aside and gently rebuked him. That's foolish. That's your retirement money. And Chris was a new believer, and all he said was, I'm supposed to love my neighbors myself, and I have no doubt that if it were me, I would empty my 401k to get myself out of jail. Wouldn't you? What do you say to that? But praise God. Okay. 
So I'm just saying there needs to be room for stuff like that without just saying imprudent. I'm not saying everyone needs to go do that. I'm just saying at least passages like this certainly put that type of thought into play. So anyway, sorry, you asked a simple question about giving. All I'm trying to emphasize is it's voluntary. But Paul wants to catch a vision for us getting excited about how much we got. I think maybe we can give more, you know, and the joy and seeing the joy of doing that rather than some guilt trip. Like, what have you done for the Lord lately? He's done so much for you. Can't you at least give a farthing? You know, you know um, which is how the medieval, um, you know, indulgence, you know, good Christian mother, you know. Sorry, you got to watch Luther and then you'll get my Tetzel references. Do you have a coin for Christ? You know, no, no, we're not peddlers. But giving is, is a real part of, of ministry. And, and Paul makes it clear those who make their living, those who preach the gospel should live by the gospel. The elders who rule well are worthy of double, the word can be translated pay. We, it could be honor or pay. It's reward or recompense. Are worthy of double um, recompense or, or honor or pay. So there's, there's a principle there of, of of, look, if you're being served, if these people are ministering to you, if you're being taught here, then it, you owe this church your, your, your time and your treasure. You know what I mean? Whatever that works out to be. Um, I've actually picked up a number of folks with this principle, um, but I won't tell any of those stories here now. But we have people start showing up to like Bible studies and stuff pretty consistently, going to other churches, and after a couple months, it's kind of like, look, um, Galatians 6.6, 6, if this is where you're being fed, why don't you use your gifts and serve here? Just saying, just saying. Um, okay. Any, uh, any other questions on that? Um, Zach opened a can of worms. To, to recap, we are obligated to give, but the principle of how much, hey, that's entirely between you and the Lord. Um, so if somebody said they're not giving at all, I could say, well, that's not right. But if someone's like, am I giving enough? I don't know. You know, um, I don't know. So, thankfully, we have a very generous body, so we aren't having to worry about, like, cutting our budget and stuff. I mean, that's partly all we're doing with the budget. It's like, hey, here's what we're thinking of planning to spend next year. Uh, does this seem good to you guys? And, you know, um, people say amen, and we go great, and we, you know, we go on. And God's been, it's, it's, it's very, it's a great blessing. We don't have to worry about a lot of those things. For, there are churches that do, um, but we, we aren't having to worry about that. So, it's just people seem to get this, so it's not something we need to keep, you know, teaching on. But it is tough to teach on, because how do you say, I want you to give more money, but it's not because I want your money, but it's because I want the blessing you're to get when you give the money. Which is what Paul says here. It just sounds like so like a TV televangelist. And so I'm just glad we don't have to do any... What? So is Saeed. So is Saeed. Okay. Yes, Elsa. Why would it be wrong? What would be the argument for why it's wrong? I would just say that gives you a reason so you can give more. (laughs) If Caesar wants to make it easier for me to give to the church, great. The day may come, people have already started discussing whether they should take tax-exempt status away from churches. It may come to the point where you won't get those benefits. But if Caesar wants to do that, amen, thank you, Caesar. You know, um, There's nothing wrong with that at all. Um, no. That's, yeah, 
yeah, God's going to judge our heart and our motives. It's really the matter here. I mean, so Paul's telling them, there are people who generally meant to give and now can't. And he's like, no, God is honored with your desire. You generally meant it. Good for you. You know? Um, now, to those who are still able, he is saying, but if you're still able to, it's not just enough to have good intentions. Follow, if you can follow through, you need to follow through. But if you can't, that's okay. That's what he's saying, you know? Um, so I just like Paul's attitude in Second Corinthians 8, where he's talking about fundraising and, and not putting a burden on them. Like, I'm giving you my, my, my wisdom, my judgment. I'm not giving you a command. God, this is where we get God loves a cheerful giver. Um, where is that? Hold on. Um, yeah, verse chapter 9. He picks it up some more. Let's just go a little further. Um, verse 6. To this point, the point is this. Um, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Now, there it is. What's the measurement of how you give? What you and the Lord decide upon in your heart. Um, Each must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. So not under compulsion, which means I need to not preach, you know, guilt trip sermons. Paul... Well, in principle, there could be some issues. I mean, I would never want to go down this road, but technically, in churches where people make open pledges, and I know of churches where you do, you, you write down. Now, you do run into a matter, potentially, of integrity and keeping your word. I would feel really sketchy challenging someone with lying and deceit for pledging to give and not. But I'm, just, I'm looking at what could be valid. There could be an issue there. Um, if someone was giving zero, giving nothing, I know I've heard stories of people who get mad at the pastor and they stop giving. And they would do, almost do it intentionally to be seen. It's like, okay, that's not okay. Because you, you need to give something. You know what I mean? Um, so in theory, you could, I could see charging someone, challenging someone. You know, say someone that's their boast. I don't give. You know. Um, okay, you, you need to read the scripture and you need to be in, your conscience needs to be instructed and then you need to Give how much? Yeah, that that sounds kind of sketchy. Yeah. Oh dear. Wow. Well, it was uh, Mark. Mark Sullivan was telling me at a church he showed up to, where the very first week he was there as a guest, one of the deacons gave him a sign-up sheet for how much he was going to start giving. And he and she, he and Sherry didn't go back. So that's that's kind of bold in the front, you know what I mean? Um, so yeah, yeah, you got to build St. Peter's Basilica though. So um, any other any other thoughts or questions on giving? We got t- yes, Al. Mm. 
Yeah, yeah. No, let me let me let me close because we got five or ten minutes on, on this. I think there's nothing wrong. I have I have health insurance. I, you know, I, those things are fine. Jesus, you guys remember the story of the, the Pharisees and Corbin? You guys remember that? Here's here's what Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees. I got to stand. Hold on a sec. Mm, okay. All right. Ah. I'll start to feel better. I got six stitches right through my stomach muscle. And if I sit the wrong way and one of them starts pulling, I ain't happy. So that's okay. We're just going to stand here for a minute. Okay. Basically, what the Pharisees had was a way of um, hiding money. Kind of like, <coughs> like a tax shelter from God. And basically, what it worked was is this. You could dedicate some of your belongings for the church. Kind of like people now, you know, my, my brother-in-law gets gets people wealthy donors to de- to dedicate some part of their estate to colleges they went to and stuff like that churches can do that well the pharisees would do that so it'd be kind of like i'm dedicating when i die my house for ministry sorry mom and dad i can't even though you're old and i ought to take you in i can't because i've dedicated my house for ministry and conveniently i still get to live in the house in the meantime <laughs> yeah and so the pharisees were coming up with these tricky ways to get around the commands of god I'm only suggesting that we not assume as an absolute korban all of our savings and all of our retirement plans because it may be that God's going to put on some of your hearts to do some radical giving for people in need. And all I'm saying is, biblically, you're not being foolish, you're not being imprudent, you're not being unwise if you were to do something like that. You look at the Thessalonian example, so I'm not trying to command people to do it, but I certainly want to free people because I've met people who've been so bound up with fiscal principles that... They've got all their money corboned away in 30 different boxes for a college fund and for this fund and for that fund and for the next thing. And that, that's going too far, too. So I just want to free people up. You're not going to regret being generous. You're not. In the resurrection, you're not going to get to heaven and say, why was I so generous? It's not going to happen. So that's all I'm trying to say. Fly? What? Right. Right, right. So that's all I'm trying to get to is, is, is not to try to throw away every principle of biblical res- prudence. I would say basically status quo, use the biblical principles for saving, for, for, for wisdom, but be open to radical giving that goes beyond what is normally prudent. Be open to those types of needs and those types of things and understand that there are biblical examples. I mean, Jesus commends the widow who gave more than everyone else, you know. So that, that's all. That's all I'm trying to do, is free people up, so that, that you know don't don't yeah. I've just I've met people who've been so bound down by sort of fiscal prudency that they're just sort of it's almost like a, sh- a shackle on them rather than a help, rather than something that's going to help serve them. They're serving it, Serena. Oh my goodness, that one drives me crazy. Tell it. I thought he got rebuked for getting pregnant. No? Okay. I'm pretty sure that somebody else at one point when they found out they got pregnant told him he needed, that that was imprudent as well. Because, no, no, this is the type of stuff, you know. And you've got to, yeah, you've got to, you've got to, I have my, we'll close this, my Dr. Seuss test. You know, the, 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 
I do not like them on a train. I do not like them on a plane. I do not like them on a box. I don't like them with a fox, you know, that type of thing. And so is m- I'm not, let me be clear, I am not saying there's anything wrong or even unwise with having life insurance. But I've had somebody try to come at me and tell me, um, this was back when I was in seminary, that uh, because a person doesn't care for his family, it's worse than an unbeliever. You've got to go back and read that in context. The context is, if a widow has believing relatives, let them care for her. Otherwise, why should she be a burden to the church? So the context is, you've got a believing relative, you clearly, implicitly could help them, and you say, get lost, Gran. Okay. Turn this into, after I'm dead, I still need to be providing for my family. I'm like, you understand that that text you're quoting is written in exactly how Paul says widows will be cared for, right? Anyway, but that was why I, you know, life insurance was a moral obligation. Let's try the Dr. Seuss test. Is, did, was Peter in sin because he didn't have life insurance? Believers in Afghanistan in sin because they don't, if it doesn't work on a boat with a train, with a crane, it may be wise, it may be good. I'm not saying it isn't. You're going to have to take a step back from morally obliged if it doesn't work everywhere and at all times. That's all I'm saying. Jesus didn't have life insurance. There you go. So, so don't misunderstand me. I'm not speaking against it. I'm just saying we look at these things that are helpful. We look at these things that can have some wisdom to them, and then we want to take the next step and bind consciences with them, and we've got to be careful. That's all. Okay. I will see you all tonight, hopefully, for the children's musical and next week after Christmas. God bless. And I'm taking my second Vicodin. Okay. Zach, could you bring back my um, big book?